welcome everyone. I'll, uh, I'll open us with a word of prayer, then we can just hop on into things. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we could gather together and study your word. As we discuss the, the book of Revelation, a book that is confusing for many, that is, is complex, that, is, that, that requires some, some hard work and understanding, I, I ask that your spirit would guide us, that you would be with us, that you would help us to, uh, to see clearly the beauties of your word, the, the message that you have communicated through it and what you intend to, to tell us, would we, would we be responsible readers? Would we read in a way that, that honors you by, by seeking to, to find not what we want the text to mean, not what we, we think it should mean, but, but by seeking what the, the author, the, the human author John and, and you, Lord, as the divine author, what you intended we ask that you would help us as we seek to do this. Help me, Father, as I attempt to communicate these things. We ask that you would, you would be glorified in this, Lord. And, and we thank you for the, the message of this book, which announces so, so clearly the, the future return of Christ when he will one day make all things right, when he will rescue his people, he will judge his enemies. Even in the, the text that we will look at today, the end of the seventh trumpet announces the, the return of Christ and the, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord. We eagerly await this day. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you, uh, if you weren't with us last week, I have a handout I can, can get to you after. Um, what we started was this section in Revelation that ends up taking, uh, taking up the a good good chunk of the book, really this entire uh, middle section, and it's a series of three three judgments. You have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls, and there's some stuff in between there, but last week we walked through the seven seals. Um, I laid some important groundwork last week in terms of how we're approaching the seals, how we're approaching the book in general, and so I thought it would be helpful, whether you were here or not, um, or if, uh, just to repeat again. So we, we have in, in our heads what, uh, what it is that is going on and, and what, I, uh, what I'm going to be presenting is, is the way I, I think we should be, be looking at this. So um, when we get to this, this section of, of there's three series of judgments, um, it, it's helpful if we ask, how is this central part of the book? Really, chapters 4 through 22, um, and then more specifically, these series of judgments. How are they structured? Are they, um, how are they related to one another? Are they chronological? Are they related thematically? Both, or is it something different? And so there's two main approaches here. The debate revolves around whether chapters 4 through 22 represent a sequential forecast of events that will happen um, at the end of, of time, right before Christ returns, or if some of those segments overlap uh, temporally when they, uh, when they happen, if, they're, if they overlap thematically. And so there's kind of these two, two main positions. Um, one position would see the order of the, the visions as generally representing the order of future end time events. This is what I referred to a few weeks ago as the futurist position. And so 
typically they would understand that chapters 4 through 22 are a depiction of future events that are going to happen only in the period right before the, the second coming, right before Jesus returns. It's going to be um, the, the judgment that occurs, a lot of times they'll say seven years before uh, he returns. And so it's way in the future. It happens in this order. Uh, and so this is, this is one view. The other position would view the series of visions as repeating or uh, recapitulating themselves with respect to both chronology and the, the subject matter, the content. And so this view acknowledges that there's three different points of time within these chapters. You have the past, the present, and the future. The book contains events associated with the redemptive work of Christ, his death and his resurrection. So the past and the present, the current church age, the church age that, uh, that the people John was writing to found themselves in, and even the, the age that we find ourselves in, and then the future, the second coming of Christ, um, and the, the day of the Lord, when he will, will come and judge his enemies and deliver his people. So this view would see that there's all three of these, uh, these time periods. It's not just about the far future. I argued last week that I think this second view is most convincing. I think it best fits with the nature of Revelation as an apocalyptic book and also with the, the data that we find within Revelation. And so um, I'll, I'll go through that a little more. But um, in this view, rather than presenting a literal chronological order in which these events will occur, I think that what we find in these chapters really are, are parallel descriptions or recapitulations. That's what I mean by that word. And, uh, of the same events. And so essentially the book consists of a series of parallel visions in which God expresses the same truth in different ways. Here's a quote from Greg Beale. No specific prophesied historical events are discerned in the book except for the final coming of Christ to deliver and judge and to establish the final form of the kingdom in a consummated new creation. Revelation symbolically portrays events throughout history, which is understood to be under the sovereignty of the Lamb as a result of his death and resurrection. He will guide the events depicted until they finally issue in the last judgment and the definitive establishment of his kingdom. The majority of the symbols in the book are transtemporal in the sense that they are applicable to events throughout the entire church age. So, the way that then we understand how chapters 4 through 22 fit together has a direct implication on how we are going to approach uh, these series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Again, there's a few different views here, and so uh, I won't spend a whole ton of time on, on each of them, just give you, give you the gist. Again, one would see a strict sequence. You go through the first seven seals in order, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way through, then through the, uh, through the trumpets, then through the bowls. It's linear, it's sequential, there's no overlap at all, it just goes from one to the next. Another view would, would see that they're, they're sequential, they are uh, chronological, but um, some of the judgments are overlapping and there, are, uh, there is an escalation uh, that occurs. And then another view would see uh, kind of a telescopic view where the seventh in each series unleashes the, um, the next seven. And so the seven seals, the seventh seal doesn't really have any content of its own. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. 
The seventh trumpet doesn't have any content of its own. The seventh trumpet is the seven bowls, is what this view would say. Um, the view that I presented, and, and I tried to show that the events in chapters 4 through 22 are not in chronological order, and instead there's this frequent um, parallelism and uh, recapitulation. So I, I think that this view works best with, with what we find in the book, and so uh, I call it the progressive parallelism or recapitulation view, and so uh, the seals in this view and the trumpets and bowls are parallel in each that they, uh, in that they each communicate the same truths. That is, they all reveal the judgments and events that will take place throughout the course of history during the church age, and they show the culmination of those judgments in the second coming, in the eschaton, and so in this sense, they each express the same truth in different ways. I gave this analogy. I think it's helpful. Um, maybe you're a football fan. Maybe you're not. But if you can imagine watching a football game on TV, you're watching one game, and then as you're watching, the camera switches frequently. You have a bunch of different cameras that are recording the game. You might have one that is on the sideline. You might have one that is in the uh, announcer's booth. You have those ones that fly over the field. Now you even have them in the little pylons on the field. And so you have all these different uh, angles and all these different shots. It's showing one game from a bunch of different angles. And so it's what I think that we have here. All three series of judgments portray these events and phenomena that occur throughout the church age and then also at the consummation, at the close of human history, and they do so in, um, in different ways. You do see the overlap, and that's why we have uh, a lot of similarities between them, but they do so from different angles, even though they're showing the same thing, showing one, one event, one, um, one, one thing going on, one truth, really, but it's doing it in different, different ways, uh, that's why you have par uh, this parallelism or uh, recapitulation. It's recapitulating. It's taking what has been said and showing it in a different way, showing it from a different angle. Uh, these series of judgments, they bring us to the close uh, of human history, and that's where we see the final judgment. The recapitulations within the book fill out in more detail the judgments that will occur. That's why there's these different angles. If you only had one angle, You'd see the whole thing, but it, it would be limited. It would be from that one angle. And so by showing it from all these different angles, it fills in um, some of the details of, of what, it, what will happen and what, uh, what the truth that is being communicated is. And so um, I'm not alone here. I listed some, some scholars who, um, who agree with that, who, who take that same approach. Um, and so that's just a summary of, of kind of what we talked about last week. Hopefully that's helpful if you weren't here is, or if you didn't, uh, didn't maybe catch it all last week, did anyone have any questions then before we, before we move on? All right. Well, um, oh, there's a, I forgot I had a couple quotes. So this, this approach that I'm um, presenting, here's Sam Storms, one person who argues for this approach. He says, this interpretive scheme is based on the belief that Revelation presents us with a description of principles and events that transpire throughout the entire course of church history between the two advents of Jesus. In other words, contrary to the futurist interpretation, 
Revelation is not concerned merely with events at the close of history, immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. Rather, there are multiple sections in the book, each of which recapitulates the other. That is to say, each of which begins with the first coming of Christ and concludes with the second coming of Christ and the end of history. Each of these sections provides a series of progressively parallel visions that increase in their scope and intensity as they draw nearer to the consummation. This is what is called the principle of recapitulation. Here's another uh, commentator who says, the unity of John's book is not chronological, but artistic, like that of a musical theme with variations, each variation adding something new to the significance of the whole composition. Composition, sorry. This is the only view which does adequate justice to the double fact that each new series of visions both recapitulates and develops the themes already stated in what has gone before. All right, now we can move on. Any questions? Uh, Joel? Just, um, on the seventh seal, I don't remember us talking about this, about the silence, mm -hmm. you know, the significance of the silence and the, the um, corresponding Old Testament references. Yeah. Um, so I read about that, and um, it seems like the sciences were a lot about um, God um, holding the final end as a chance for people to repent. And this judgment, therefore, is, should be seen as God's, God's love also, not just God's wrath, but also God's love, giving people a chance to repent, right? To see him and to respond. Um, we'll talk about some of that today. I don't think that in the series of judgments, the, the main goal is to bring about repentance. And I think we see that especially here in these today. Um, we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about how the seven trumpets are modeled after the plagues of Egypt. Uh, the goal of God's, uh, God's judgment on the Egyptians, the plagues, was not to bring about them, bring about repentance. It was to display his power and his glory and then deliver his people. He says that multiple times that he, he is the one who will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he might be glorified and his glory displayed to the nations. And so um, I think the silence... And we, we see this in the prophets. I, I listed in the handout last week several, um, several connections back at 2, Zephaniah 1, Zechariah 2, where this silence is, um, is it, it, it is, uh, God's judgment is so great that the earth can do nothing but sit in silence. And so the prophets call for silence. That is the response of God's judgment. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's uh, necessarily a kind of a pause. And I'll give you guys some time to get it together before I pour this out, but it's, it is uh, his judgment that is being poured out, especially in the seventh seal. The seventh seal, uh, all of the sevens, the seventh seal, trumpet, and bowl are the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. Um, they are that future day, and so at that point, there's no, there's no more time to repent. Christ returns. And, yeah. um, no, I said that poorly, but I, I think there is something there for people to see whether uh, their eyes are open or for, for them to hear, whether they're deaf or not. Mm -hmm. There is something there where, as it says in Zephaniah, like, hey, you know, be silent before the Lord. And it says, um, uh, be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared sacrifice and consecrated guests. I mean, 
Zephaniah and Revelation itself are not, are they not to some degree warnings that we should take and consider? No, they are. They, they certainly are. Um, and so with the, with the seals, or with the trumpets rather, as I mentioned, patterned after, um, patterned after the, the plagues, when we think about Pharaoh uh, and this, this example before, sure, the, the, the plagues and God's judgment are warnings, and they are, um, they are warnings for which Pharaoh is held accountable, um, even if he does not heed them. But I, I think they're ultimately attended for judgment. And so, so there may be a part of it that in judgment... Um, People see that and come to repentance, but I also think when we we look at uh, in our passage today in, in 920, yeah, God has poured out all this rip, all these judgments, um, it's like, it's like but it's, these people still don't repent. Yeah, it's like poured out judgment, and yet they did not repent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, they're blind. Yeah, and so I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but I don't think it's. Primary focus uh, is that is that of bringing about repentance. Yeah, good question. Anything else? Yeah, Pastor Gary. I wonder if some of the difference here is people who are living at the time these events are unfolding, and of course some of this, a lot of this is happening throughout the history, but mm-hmm. but all of you can be now as we're reading and say, hey, I want to go through this. I, I think we need to go to Jesus, and so. Is that, I wonder if that helps with what Joel's talking about. And, and we see it now, and when God has announced it, some people in the were looking at it. Certainly, we, yeah. We get to that last day where we're all harmed, and we, we, we're repentant and not go there. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, think that's, I think that's right, Anna. And, and the judgments leading up until the final, um, the final day, there is yes, there is still time, and, and those judgments occurring throughout uh, throughout history, uh, there is that opportunity to come about repentance to, to repentance, and then you get to with like the seventh seal, with uh, the the seventh trumpet and bowl, where that day comes, there is no more more time, and so um, so talking about the the judgments overall, yes, there is that opportunity for repentance, and and that these judgments would bring about repentance. In regards to just that reference to silence in chapter 8, I don't think that's specifically saying, yes, it's just kind of a pause to give people time to repent. I think that's more focused on the judgment is here, and it's, it's great and awesome. Yeah, I was thinking about a point in time or something like that, but I think it's more of a stance and position, or yeah. position, a person's position towards God. They should step back and think about these things. They should consider these things. And just like it says in Zechariah, Messiah, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself in his holy dwelling. So, you know, fear the Lord. Think about it. What's going on here? Yeah. Of course, if it's a depiction of the entire church age, there's time for repentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because since the birth of Christ till the second coming, people are repenting constantly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, we will uh, get into our, our section for today. We have a lot of a lot of a lot of text to cover, and I, I there's no way we can talk about every single verse. There's a ton of um, there's so many different allusions and different connections to imagery in the Old Testament. I, I gave you a handout that has um, a lot of those there. I'm going to hit some some major themes, and especially this this motif of um, this connection to Exodus. 
we'll spend some time on and then we'll focus in also on, um, on chapter 11. But if you have any questions or things that as you were, were reading really, really stuck, uh, stuck out to you that you want to mention or if you had uh, things that didn't make any sense or um, there was imagery that you, you were confused by, feel free to, to ask that and, and we'll, we can talk about that. I, um, with so much to so many different ways we could go, I came up with a few ideas and, and was hoping that we could just steer the steer the discussion in whatever way that people uh, people wanted, whatever questions you might have. So um, I briefly tipped tip my hat towards this, but um, I gave you this handout with uh, it says Revelation and the New Exodus. Um, one of the things that that we see in Revelation is obviously stress it the entire time is a connection to the Old Testament allusions in pretty much every verse. Uh, one of the books that, that John draws on a lot is Exodus, the book of, of Exodus, and um, that's uh, especially prevalent in these series of judgments, especially the trumpets and the bulls. So I thought I'd spend a bit of time talking about that and uh, pointing out some of those, those parallels um, between, between the two books. So I'll read through some of this. You can, can read through it on your own. But essentially, the, the, the book is shaped by the narrative of the Exodus, of, of God's people being in bondage and then delivered through the series of judgments um, and everything that follows after that. It is shaped by that. And, and really, the, the, the Exodus, if you read the Old Testament, serves as, as kind of the, the chief paradigm of God's God's salvation of his people, his, his judgment of, of those who oppose his people, and throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures, it's, it, the theme continues to be, uh, to be brought up, and in the prophets, they look forward to a future exodus, the return from exile, and it's both spiritual exile and physical exile, and we see Jesus Christ as the one who has um, led people out of, of spiritual captivity, and he has, has brought about a new exodus. John also develops this idea of, of a new exodus. And so uh, in laying out this plan for, for judgment and deliverance through Jesus, the slain lamb, he builds on the themes and language and the significance of the exodus event and uh, the exodus narrative. And so he then depicts the future deliverance, the future exodus of God's people, the church, in these terms, in terms of a new exodus. In Revelation, divine judgment is a major theme. By patterning these seals and trumpets and trumpets and bowls after the exodus, and even more specifically, the ten plagues, the supreme glory, power, and sovereignty, sovereignty of the true God are highlighted. Throughout the entire Old Testament, it's a quote from, from Brian Tabb. He says, The Exodus narrative exemplifies the biblical pattern of salvation through judgment as Yahweh defeats and destroys Israel's enemies in order to deliver his people. In Revelation, we find the realization of the last and great Exodus as the sovereign triune God decisively defeats his enemies, executes judgment, and saves his people all to the praise of his glory. So if we uh, focus in on the, the seven trumpets and the ten plagues, we see a, a bunch of overlap. Uh, I put this chart together, it's adapted from, um, from a, a book by Brian Tabb. And so we have the trumpets. First trumpet is uh, judgment on the earth and land. There's hail and fire. 
matches with the, the seventh plague, which had, which had hail and fire upon the land. The second trumpet is on the, seal, or on the sea, rather, and water. The water turns to blood. A third of sea creatures die. We have the first plague in Exodus. The Nile turns to blood. The fish die, and people are unable to drink the water. The third trumpet, uh, trumpet is on rivers and springs. The water turned, turned bitter. People die from drinking it. Again, there's this judgment on the water. You're unable to drink it. The fourth one is on the moon, the stars, and the sun. Uh, one third of each of them turn dark. The ninth plague, uh, there's darkness across the whole land. Yeah, Is there a relevance between a third of the sun, a third of the sea creatures? Because when um, Lucifer fell from heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. Is that, is that a uh, Yes, there, uh, in the book, Possibly here you see, so in the seven seals, the judgments uh, impact a fourth of things. And then in the trumpets, it impacts a third of things. And then in the bowls, it impacts the whole thing. And so there's this escalation as you move towards the final consummation. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that. Here it shows that there's, um, there's a partial judgment. It's not the whole earth. And so... That is one thing. I'll, one reason that these judgments are not just future, right before Christ returns, because they're they're partial. And when Christ returns, it's the the full uh, full judgment on all all things. And so these are throughout the church age. As there are these partial judgments. Um, in terms of the connection to the, this Satan, um, there there may be a connection. I'd have to to think about that and. and on that so when we get to that passage in uh, uh, should be in the next couple weeks we can talk about that um, the fifth trumpet is, the abyss is open there's darkness locusts who torment people this parallels the eighth and ninth plague that has locusts and darkness the sixth there's four angels released at the Euphrates one third of mankind killed those not killed by plagues refuse to repent there's not a direct correlation to the plagues, per se, but um, the failure to repent highlighted in 920 is really similar and parallels Pharaoh's hard-hearted refusal to submit to Yahweh despite the ten plagues. It's all throughout, uh, through, throughout Exodus. And then the seventh trumpet, there's lightning, rumblings, thunder, an earthquake, and a hailstorm. The seventh plague on Egypt, there's thunder, hail, and lightning. And so John, uh, John takes... These, these judgments that were, uh, that were against, uh, against Pharaoh and against Egypt, and he um, applies them now on a, on a lot, lot, much larger scope um, as, as judgments that will, will occur throughout the earth on unbelievers. In this section, the seven trumpets, these are, are particularly against unbelievers on the earth. In the last section, the seven seals, um, there were judgments unleashed on the earth, but we also had the saints who were in some ways impacted by, uh, by these judgments. And especially in, um, in the, fifth, uh, the fifth seal, we have the, the saints crying, the martyrs crying out before God, crying for, for justice um, as a result of uh, their persecution. And so here now it's specifically focused on, on unbelievers and, and John takes these, applies them on a much larger scale. At the climax of each of these, 
these series of judgments. I noted this last week, but it's uh, important to point out again. We have, um, we have the phrase that, that is repeated about the lightning, rumbling, thunder, and earthquake. This is not only relates to the seventh plague, but it directly um, mimics the language of uh, Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai, where God shows up in a theophany, in this glorious appearance, to meet with his people, to, uh, to make a covenant with them. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that, that language, those, uh, those images of lightning, rumblings, thunder, and earthquakes, uh, are, are taken and they're associated with Yahweh's appearance, but especially as, as his, they're really paradigmatic for future future appearances of Yahweh to execute judgment. And so, um, at first, they're, in Exodus, they're God's glorious appearance. They're taken throughout the, the rest of the Old Testament and refer to God's appearing, especially for judgment. Here's a quote from Brian Tabby. He says, Revelation returns repeatedly to the sights and sounds of Sinai, to convey the transcendent holiness and thundering power of God. The refrain of lightning, rumblings, thunder, and quake drawn from Exodus 19.16 signals that God is executing his new Exodus plans for judgment and salvation. The cycles of seven seals, trumpets, and bowls of wrath each conclude with uh, theophanic imagery, Theophany's appearance of God, first introduced in Revelation 4-5 to make clear that the heavenly throne is the ultimate source of the climactic plagues of judgment. The fact that this is repeated at the end of of each series of judgment in the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, it it shows this this escalation, escalation, this focus on um, now the day of the Lord coming in in the final seal and final trumpet. and it yeah, has this focus on the, the power of God. It's coming from his throne, as Tab pointed out. These judgments are coming from God. Uh, and so that's one, one, another reason, and I pointed out last week, how I, I, why I think it's better to see the plagues not as chronological as sequential, but they all end the same way. They all end with, um, with this future day of the Lord that uses the, the same language, the same language from Exodus 19 of God's appearance. Um, and so it doesn't, in my opinion, make sense to see them sequentially. They all really refer to, to the same event, and that same event is the, the return of Christ, the judgment of all people, rewards for those who are righteous, who are in Christ, and judgment for those who are not. Um, and why we have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, is we are given these different views on this event. Uh, the seventh of each shows us a different view on this final final judgment. Any questions uh, there? And just the, the theme of uh, motif of the Exodus throughout the book. Was that something that you picked up on as you read? Did you see the connections with the plagues and, and ways that there, there were a lot of similarities? Good. Yeah, again, John is... is patterning so many things in this book off of uh, Old Testament stories and Old Testament um, passages, and so that, that familiarity is really going to serve you well. So in the first series with the seals, um, 
Jesus was the only one worthy to unseal them, right? So Yeah, Jesus is the one doing all that is unsealing all these things. And in yes. five he unseals the scroll. And here and right and then um, and here we have trumpets, right? Mm-hmm. So the trumpets also came before, right before the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah, that's another connection. I, I forgot to mention the, the trumpets, but yes. Yeah. As well as um, it's big in Ezekiel and some other places too, where it's always like, this is an announcement from God. This is a message from God. Yeah, the trumpets, um, they, yeah, they, they really, they do a few things. They do, um, they, they signify warning and judgment. And so the trumpet is sounded because judgment is coming, but they also, um, they also then picture really good, good news in this announcement of God's reign and of uh, his appearance in Exodus 19, um, of victory. Another, another parallel is uh, in Joshua, the story of Jericho. You have seven trumpets carried by the seven priests, and they walk around for seven days, and the, the wall comes tumbling down. Uh, so Jesus um, broke the seal, mm-hmm. but the angels blew the trumpets. Jesus is the one who, who is worthy to open the scroll in, in Revelation 5, and then in Revelation 6, he begins to open the scrolls, and now we have the angels blowing the trumpets, and um, God uses other uh, angels or, or what have you to, to execute these judgments. He is the one giving them power. That is why we see so many times, and they are given power. They are given power by God, and so uh, sometimes it depicts it in the seals as Christ directly unleashing, in unleashing these things. Here, uh, the angels are announcing these things, declaring as they're the ones blowing the trumpets. Um, they're pointing to God. And, yeah, essentially pointing to God and declaring that he is, he is the one doing these things. So, um, yeah, the, but good, good catch there, Joel, on the, on the trumpets. Those are... Um, there's a lot of significance there just throughout the, the Old Testament and the use of trumpets. Uh, they, they were required to be blown when Israel would go into battle or before uh, different feasts and um, celebrations. And so there is that mix of judgment and victory being proclaimed. Um, on that, that same sheet, I came up with a bunch of other things that, uh, just within the, the trumpet and bold judgments and also within the entire book of Revelation. There's so many more connections to Exodus Obviously, the plagues and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God is the one who is. That, uh, that allusion to Exodus 3 when Yahweh reveals himself as, as Yahweh, the one who is. Um, you have bitter water, Exodus 15, pillar of fire, all, all these other things that I, that I listed, that there's these just subtle connections to the Exodus story, the book of Exodus, um, showing how, how John builds off these things and... and frames what happens in, in Revelation as this second exodus where God delivers his people once and for all from uh, the oppressors, from those who, who stand against the church uh, and really is the, really the, the climax it stands. It's, it's even better than the first exodus. Uh, this is the, the uh, climactic exodus. And so and that is a, a theme that is significant throughout the entire book. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. I love it. If in the first Exodus, if God saved his people from Pharaoh, then are we saved 
from these plagues because it seems to me that uh, the uh, Israelites did not um, suffer the uh, water turning to blood. They still had water. They didn't. Mm -hmm. They didn't suffer yeah. the locusts. They didn't suffer because they put the blood on the doorpost. The death angel passed over. Well, if there's a correlation between the Exodus and Revelation, then I can't. I can see that maybe we're not going to be here to suffer these plagues. Yeah, and. Um... It's not that we're not going to be here, but that we are protected. It is that we are sealed in Revelation 7. Um, the, it declared, don't, don't execute these judgments until the complete number of those who are sealed is finished, right? And um, talked about this isn't some number of, of, future, of future Israelites. This is God sealing all of his people. That seal is spiritual protection. Uh, and then these judgments are released in chapter uh, chapter nine, in um, let's see the the judgments here in in let's see it's uh, it's the fifth. Where? Oh man, where is it? I'm using a different Bible, so now I don't don't know where on the page it is. Um, okay, here it is in in nine four, the the fifth trumpet. There to to harm and torment those who do not have the seal of God. These judgments are especially against unbelievers. They are only against unbelievers here. Uh, those who have the seal of God are protected. And that protection is not primarily physical. It is a spiritual protection. And we'll see in, in 11 that, uh, and even all throughout the book of Revelation, that the, the saints are martyred. They are killed, that they are persecuted. And they're trampled upon, yet their souls are protected. The spiritual um, protection is there. And so these judgments, too, uh, they're not only physical for unbelievers, but there's a spiritual side as well, that they are not protected spiritually. There's judgment upon them for their failure to uh, spiritually to, uh, to acknowledge God and repent of their works and put faith in Christ. And so... Um, yeah, I, I don't think that there's a, that Revelation gives us the indication that they will, we will just be raptured and get to miss out on all of it. And as we saw in the seals, there, there is a reality in which these judgments are, are happening and the saints are, are afflicted by the wicked people on the earth. That's why we have in the fifth seal um, the saints who have been martyred crying out to God for this, uh, this vindication for justice because they are... Um, impacted by the evil earth dwellers, as, as Revelation calls them, those who, who dwell on the earth. Um, but that future, that future um, peace that, that is promised and this spiritual protection now is promised. And so the seal, I think, in, in Revelation 7 is, is important. And then as we see in the, in the bowls, those who have the seal of the beast, um, receive judgment. And so some of these judgments are just against um, unbelievers. The other, other ones are on the earth and saints are in some ways impacted by them. They are not directly judged. They don't, um, God doesn't call down, you know, the locusts or whatever on them, but yet as a result of everything that is going on, they feel the, uh, the implications of that. Does that help at all? Well, I don't know 
I, I don't think I'm strong enough to go through that physical and and that's part I don't uh, in looking at these judgments um, they're very figurative and, and image laden and so it's not that every single one of these is is precisely little and precisely what will happen and that um, just for five months there's going to be these locusts following unbelievers around and messing with them um, and they do stand for these larger spiritual realities and and underlying truths, uh, the, the good news is, is, you're right, you're not strong enough and none of us are strong enough, but we can have hope and have, um, and have confidence because we are sealed by God and that seal is unbreakable. Um, and so we won't face that judgment in the same way, uh, but then there is this, this call to persevere and to, to keep on and to remain faithful. And that and, and so when we talk about the book and, and so when we talk about the purpose of the book, um, the purpose isn't to to cause you to have um, have worry. Really the, the purpose of revelation and of other apocalyptic literature is literature is to instill hope and to instill uh, confidence in the future and motivation. And so, um, so yes, things will not be easy necessarily in the way that we would always want them to be, yet God promises that he will keep us, that we are sealed, and also that he uses uh, these sufferings and all these things for our good and for his glory. We point to Romans 8, 28, and Hebrews 12, talking about enduring suffering as God uses it to... Uh, to grow us in our in our faith and in holiness. So, um, so so yeah. The, the the message of Revelation is is good news for us and does give us hope. And uh, the the ultimate the bo- the bottom line is is Jesus wins. And so um, we we can trust that things will be set right and that uh, those who are in Christ will will receive what has been promised to them. Yeah. I have a question. Spiritually sealed. Are you saying once saved, always saved, basically? Yes. Yeah. That those, uh, that those whom, as I mentioned, those whom the Father has given Jesus will never be lost. N- nothing can snatch them out of my hand, as it says in the Gospel of John. There's a lot of other verses we can point to. And um, that ceiling that we see in, in Revelation 7, um, it is a, a mark of God's election, his uh, His. His choosing of people and he is he is um, in revelation 7 we also see the the multi-ethnic um, followers of the lamb the the, the multitude of uh, saints who are from every tribe every nation every tongue uh, that no one could number that god has has purchased by the blood of uh, through the death of christ christ has purchased a people you see that in back in chapter uh, the, the beautiful the beautiful hymn in, in chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the death of Jesus has purchased, has redeemed people for God, and those people have been sealed and um, Again, that ceiling here, because this isn't just a, 
future right before Jesus returns. This is including people who um, may not have been born yet, people who in the future will come to know Christ, and yet uh, they are sealed, and they have the seal of God on them. Um, and, and it is that which will which marks their, uh, their spiritual protection. So, uh, but yes, if you are sealed by God, you can't be unsealed. And that's, I think, the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, Ephesians 1, um, the verses in John. So, uh, so yeah, and that's an encouragement as well. Amen. Yeah. Because yeah. if it was up to me, I would be gone. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, um, another, another interesting, interesting motif that we have here in, in these seals is uh, what I've called the, the decreation of creation. Uh, in especially the first, uh, the first five, uh, the six trumpet, trumpets, man, I keep pronouncing that word wrong, <laughs> trumpets, um, we have this judgment poured out on the created order, and it, in effect, undoes, it destroys uh, creation. And so there's this focus in the first four trumpets on um, three aspects of creation, the earth, air, and water. And then the, the pinnacle of creation, mankind, is the object of God's wrath in the, the fifth and sixth trumpets. So uh, we have the undoing of creation. The destruction here is only partial. Talked about a little bit. One third of the various created things are affected uh, throughout this three series of judgments: the seals, trumpets, and bowls. There's a progression where the seals impact a quarter of the earth, uh, the trumpets a third, the bowls poured out on the whole earth. And it, this isn't to say that the judgment series are sequential in regards to the time when that they uh, when they occur. Uh, that it, there is this, you know, I as I said, I don't think it's a chronological sequential. Uh, progression, but rather these visions, as John records them, increase in their scope in, and intensity as a part of John's literary tactic of recapitulation as the progressively parallel visions draw nearer to the final consummation and judgment. It just keeps that judgment is more and more universal. Uh, this decreation here underscores a critical perspective underlying revelation, namely there's a pessimism about this age and the world from John's point of view, the world is in such bad shape that it is beyond hope for reformation. Nothing less than a complete destruction and a new beginning will solve the world's problems. This then paves the way for the glorious future recreation that uh, we, we find in the climax of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22. Uh, so here this chart summarizes some of the, the parallels here and the third day, God creates plants and trees. Uh, they sprout on the earth. Then in the first trumpet, there's uh, a third of the earth is, is uh, burned and the trees are burned. On the fifth day, living creatures swarm in the sea. The second trumpet, a third of the sea turns to blood. One third of the sea's living creatures are destroyed. Uh, in Genesis 2, there's a spring from the ground and a river from Eden that water the garden. The third trumpet, uh, it's judgment on a third of the rivers and springs of water. They become wormwood, they become bitter. On the first day, God separates light from darkness. On the fourth day, he makes the sun, moon, and stars. The fourth trumpet, 
affects a third of the sun, moon, and stars, affects the day and the night, and then on the sixth day, God creates mankind in his image and gives them dominion. The fifth and sixth trumpet, all unbelievers are tormented, a third of mankind is killed. There's this undoing of things, paving the way for this future new creation. Um, so those, there's, and, and we'll see, especially at the end of the book then, the uh, recreation of, uh, of heaven and earth as they are, are brought together. And we see this Eden imagery, this Eden language. And so that's a, another, uh, another connection in Revelation that John draws on is uh, the story of creation in, in the book of Genesis. Huh? All right, well, uh, I wanted to point out those, those couple of things. Um, and now we can start talking about some, some more specific things in the text this week. Uh, and again, if you had any questions or any things you were curious about, just imagery that maybe was confusing, um, we, can, we can talk through that. Um, I walked through the, the four trumpets and what they're, what they're patterned off of. Again, we have these, these judgments upon the earth, the air, the sea. And the first four, um, these, again, I, I believe occur throughout the church age. They're different than the final judgments. And I think the reason we have a third here is, is again, the, the, uh, this is partial Judgment. It's a partial. The partial description shows that this isn't the final judgment. When we get to the final judgment, it's everything that is that is judged. Um, I also think it's important to point out in some of these things the the symbolic nature. It's not um, it's not literal in the way that we might um, at first glance think it is. Again, we need to see the connection to the Old Testament, the way that these images are used in the Old Testament and then how they're, they're being used here. So, uh, for instance, in, um, let's see, when we, when we look at the star, uh, is it a literal meteor that is going to fall from heaven and hit a third of the, the earth's water supply and cause it to, to go bitter? Or is this, um, is this something else? Uh, the stars throughout scripture and in Revelation, a lot of times they can refer to an angelic being. And so um, those, being, those angels often stand for or represent a person or a kingdom. So here I think there's, there's judgment on a, on a kingdom and, um, that is poured out on the earth. Uh, when, we, when we look at the darkness, is there going to be a time where just a third of all the lights and the, the moon and stars are, are affected and days or whatever, like a third is, I don't know, like, or, or is this, uh, is this, this symbolic um, things that we have to think about? Yeah. One of the difficult parts here is knowing what's imagery and what's not imagery. Mm-hmm. But in the graph we're still, we're comparing this to something that is very much things I can touch. Creation is real, it's not imagery. Genesis 1 and 2, that's not imagery. Creation is creation. Mm-hmm. But the decreation, the, the, the atoms on your right, 
how can that be decreation if it's in how can you compare something that's concrete creation versus something that's imagery on the right? What's the correlation? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and it's, I mean, you, you could say a similar thing with the, with the plagues as well. Um, with the plagues, for instance, when we look at those in Exodus, uh, I absolutely believe these are real plagues that happened. And like you said, you can feel and touch. Um, Think about the darkness that it was, uh, the darkness that it, it, you could feel it um, in the, the ninth plague. As those plagues are then, as those themes and motifs are then taken throughout the rest of the Old Testament, um, especially the image of darkness, it's associated with the day of the Lord, with this uh, appearance of God in judgment. But it's used in ways that it's, it, it takes kind of the, the, the language and then makes it, um, it, it turns it into this, this imagery. And I think that we have some of those things here where there's that focus on a literal creation and yet the ways in which we have God's judgment and God's, um, God's decreation before recreation, I think that we need to, our, our first instinct needs to be seeing, th seeing the imagery. Uh, there's a common mantra when it comes to revelation is interpret everything literally until you can't and then interpret figuratively. Um, I think we kind of need to flip that and say interpret everything uh, interpret everything figuratively and then what is the, the figurative symbol literally conveying? And so there's a, there's a message, there's something being conveyed by the symbol that is not what the literal, on-the-surface meaning of that symbol is. There's something that's being conveyed that is indeed literal, and I'm not saying that it just doesn't have meaning or I don't want it to mean this so we can make it mean anything, but just in what, uh, what apoca ap apocalyptic literature does and the, the strategy um, is using these images to convey spiritual and uh, eternal realities. And so with, with the decreation, um, with some of these examples. Matt, is it like the locusts? There were probably real locusts in the, that attacked Pharaoh's people. But in the um, locusts that come, you know, it could be demons, it could be helicopters, it could be... Yes, I, I was going to... Um, I was going to spend some time on the, the locusts. And so that's a really good question. I, I was actually going to move on to the locusts and talk about then the imagery. If that doesn't clear anything up, or then, then let me, uh, then, then yeah. I have a Joel, what do you similar, um, I don't know, interjection here, but uh, just for example, the, um, the wormwood thing there, like third trumpet, like the springs in the water. I mean, we, we keep talking about these uh, judgments as both things that are constantly happening, but also something that's going to be something big at some point in time. So some of these things are happening right now, I guess is what we're saying, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you can see all kinds of things that water supplies are not trustworthy anymore. Even in our country, everything has to be, you know, purified. And, Dysentery in many places is a real 
threat, you know, cholera, um, all kinds of things. Um, it's just, if you call that the decreation of the world, or just the, the world groaning and calling out for judgment, I mean, that's what's happening, right? And so it's just this progressive, um, I don't want to say falling apart, but it's a progressive, um, almost like unraveling or something like that, deterioration or whatever uh, from creation. So. Yeah, and I mean, and if those things are are applications of what is being said here, then it's not like you know that water supply went bad because some giant meteor fell, and like, it, but it's just the way in which these judgments and we see that decreation um, occurring. We we see we we understand that there is this decreation, and then the way in which that happens. We need to find out how, the, the way that it's describing it happening, uh, describing it happening, what is that communicating? And, and is it doing that literally? So I think that hopefully the, the locus will be, be helpful for this. Um, this, is, this is fun. A lot of people you know, focus on this, and there's movies and pictures and drawings and all these things. So I just searched on the internet. When we, when we read, uh, when we read this, this section in uh, Revelation 9, about the, the fifth, and, uh, fifth and sixth trumpets, and there's these locusts that come out. They're described uh, in this way. Let's see, the, the appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their, uh, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with, hor with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Goes on a little bit. So is there at some point going to be these really scary looking locusts that have these different fe features? Or some people even say that uh, it's the helicopters, the, the Apache helicopters. You can see there, it's got the tail of a scorpion, it's got a breastplate of iron, teeth of a lion, man driving it, the wings, the sound of a horse, it's got a crown of gold on it, that's it, that is what it's talking about. Um, I don't think that's it, and I think that, again, that's, it, it shows us what can happen if we, um, if we interpret things hyper-literally. We don't allow for any symbolism. Uh, there's a couple quotes here. To attempt to find the dominant model for the locusts first in the realm of modern warfare, for instance, helicopters, as one popular writer suggests, instead of in Old Testament imagery is not the best approach. I would probably phrase it even stronger than that. <laughs> it's just an awful approach. Rather than first going forward from John's time into our present or future, we should first go back from John's time to the Old Testament, since this is the first clear source from which Revelation derives its images and determines their meaning. And Emerson says, as we read Revelation, it is crucial to understand the images as John uses them and not simply to assume that they are speaking only about modern day events that have no relevance to John or his audience. For instance, instead of saying that the locust plague unleashed by the fifth trumpet in Revelation 9 refers to Apache helicopters, we ought to seek to discern the universal theological truth conveyed by this image that was still historically relevant to John's first century readers. 
So the point here is, is if, if we're, if we're to looking at the text and then first going forward and trying to say, oh yeah, well it could be like this and it's, you know, there's this helicopter and try and matching it first, we're going in the wrong order. We first need to look at the Old Testament allusions that are being drawn from. Uh, and also, we also need to remember that, that John wrote this near the end of the first century to churches who could also understand what he was trying to convey, that he had a meaning, that he was trying to get across, that he was trying to get them to do something, that he was trying to tell them something. Um, and if we just say, oh yeah, well, it's, it's clearly here just talking about helicopters here in 2019, then we're not respecting that uh, the original intent of the author who would have been communicating something to them as well. And so here's where I think the, uh, the symbolism and, and seeing um, the underlying, as, as Emerson says, the universal theological truth, what I've called the shared truth uh, being conveyed, that's the, the, the method that we, we should be following. And so um, when it comes to, okay, for, for this example, this passage, rather than going forward, let's look at the Old Testament. If you look at Joel 1 and 2, that really is the, um, is the background for this imagery of locusts. There's this plague of locusts that, associated with the day of the Lord. And then from that, it's the Exodus plague. And so then there's an example of where the Exodus plague happened. It was a literal, a literal actual locusts swarming. Joel takes that and he reframes it then in this um, future day of the Lord uh, imagery. And he also takes it and in, in, in Joel, it doesn't seem that it's literally referring to locusts, that it's more representative of the judgment that is coming from, um, from nations, from other people. And so uh, he's using the, the language of Joel and I think also using it in the same way where it's not about a, a, a actual swarm of locusts being unleashed on the earth to torment people and to kill people. Um, I think that, yeah, we, we need to see the, the um, first and foremost, the, the imagery and the connections to the Old Testament and the underlying ideas that are, are going on here. And so with, um, with the fifth trumpet, we see that, that there will be, um, I think, as Diana mentioned, a demonic um, judgments. If you look at 9.1, it's a star fallen from heaven to earth. It's given the key uh, to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit um, is from where these judgments come. In verse 11, the bottomless pit has uh, an angel over it. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he's called uh, Apollon. And so, and I think that's Satan. Uh, Satan is, the, is the, the, the angel of the bottomless pit. And we'll, we'll see later in chapter 20, uh, Satan thrown down into the pit. But it seems to be demonic forces that are unleashed. Demonic forces that are... Um, judging unbelievers that are tormenting unbelievers and 
the way that they're doing that. They have tails like scorpions. Their power to hurt people. Uh, and yeah, yeah um, Frank. You know, you referred to Joel also, and um, Joel. I mean, isn't that an actual event that takes place that's being discussed? Not just imagery. Let's go to Joel. And so, so he uses the imagery of the locust and, and the question then is, okay, did he actually, were the, was it locusts that did this or the locusts symbolic of um, kingdoms or, or nations who then carry out this judgment? I think that, let's see, Joel, Joel 1 Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? This exhortation to, to tell your children about it. Um, this call to awaken uh, drunkards, you drinkers of wine. Verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness. So there it's a, it's a nation. And then this nation is described as locusts in verse 4. Um, in verse... Uh, in 2, 4, and 5 is also where we get some of the, the imagery, especially relevant to this passage here. And so... Um, so yes, it's an actual judgment that occurred, but I think that, that it's the, the locusts are, are nations and they're and so representative of, of not you know literal actual locusts and it's describing them um, in this way to convey certain things. I think another hint we have here in, in this passage, starting in verse seven, he says, uh, like Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight times in the next few verses. It's, uh, they're like horses. They looked like crowns of gold. Faces were like human faces, like women's hair, like lion's teeth, like breastplates, like the noise of many chariots, like scorpions. Um, I think that struggle to describe almost points us to uh, the symbolic nature of it, that he's describing and communicating something. And that have led to the destruction of, uh, you know, uh, all the things around me. Yeah, you, so you said uh, uh, describing the qualities. I think that's, that's a really good way to put it. And so he has this vision and he's describing what he's seeing. And, and the best way then for him to describe it is in the language of the Old Testament. Um, and, and those descriptions, they're, they're not literally these locusts that look like horses and they're wearing crowns, but they're these judgments that... Um, those carrying out the judgments have these characteristics, have these qualities. I think that's, that's helpful. The, the horse is prepared for battle. It's this, this strength and this might 
um, crowns of gold, there's authority again, their, uh, their power, faces like human faces, hair like women's hair, you, I think some of those connections you made were, were correct, and lion's teeth, again, their strength and power, they're ferocious. Um, Yeah, and I think actually one of the tools of these um, of these locusts is deception. In verse eighteen, they're killed by these judgments coming out of their mouth, and um, there's fire, smoke, and sulfur. It's reminiscent of uh, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, if these are demonic, demonic judgments, uh, and I, I think from the context they are, then the judgment coming out of their mouth, I, I think there, it is this, this deception. Uh, we see this issue in the church of um, false teaching being a problem that, and other, yeah, thanks. Sorry, I'll let you, let you finish there. Yeah. And um, more, let's see, in, in chapter 13 there, and 16, there's Satan and the beast who part of their judgment and their tactics is through their mouth, through judgments from their mouth. And so uh, a part of that, I, I think, is, is deception. Here's what um, Beal, Beal has a super long section on this, and he surveys all these different, all, all these different uses of this imagery in the Old Testament and in, um, and in Jewish writings and what, what it's usually referring to. And he says, our conclusion from... Uh, from this, from all these uh, these observations that he's made, is that the images of verses 17 through 19 are not figurative for the destruction wrought by modern warfare, but connote the destruction of deception leading to spiritual and physical death. This conclusion has been arrived at by a contextual comparison of the images within the apocalypse, rather than by comparing the images with similar ones in the world of modern warfare or even of past warfare. For instance, some have attempted to identify the scene with the Islamic invasions of the 15th century. So again, he says that he, he's come to this conclusion that there, um, this isn't about destruction from modern warfare, but is, is uh, connoting destruction of deception leading to spiritual and physical death based off comparing contextually the images within the apocalypse and other apocalyptic writings and other Old Testament writings that use the same language. And so, again, what is the underlying, um, what is the underlying truth being conveyed? That is universal and trans-temporal. And not just how can we try and fit some of these descriptions into some image or something today. Um, I feel like I was kind of scattered on that, hopefully, scattered on that, hopefully, it's it's complicated. It's really it's it's difficult, um, and it takes work to I think read the book well and to uh, to see how the Old Testament is using this language and um, to make those connections. Um, is that are there any other questions there? I know that again. I feel like I was kind of maybe that wasn't the most it helpful. Five twice in there. Hmm? So says twice. In- 
Why is that in there? Um, yeah, again, are we, are we approaching, approaching this as, you know, interpret everything literally unless we need to interpret it? Um, I have shown up until this point throughout the book how the numbers are used figuratively. And so I think that you should probably see it again figuratively and it's um, a shorter period of time. It's, uh, it's just a, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's, we have other periods of time that we'll talk about in this section, three and a half years, uh, 1,260 days. And so uh, it's a period of time. It's, yeah, what did, uh, wrote something down about that. So just a, a more, just a shorter period. Okay, all right. Anyway, um, yeah, this this section especially, it's there's a lot of. Again, we have people talking about helicopters and stuff, and and so I, I think that we we need to label. We really need to to try and understand. Okay, what are these underlying qualities that could be uh, conveyed? These judgments are occurring. We don't see any locusts flying around that look like this. And so um, is, is that just because it hasn't happened yet and it's only going to happen right before Jesus comes back? Or if, as I've said, and as I think Revelation is showing, that, uh, that these, that trumpets one through six are, are present and that they, uh, that they are not just in the future, that they occur throughout, throughout time, then what what would that mean and what would these judgments look like? And so there's um, important questions that we need to ask and, and really it's just a whole view of the book and what um, whether this is just future, whether this is, is, is currently going on. Yeah, Diana. Um, and yes, it says the fact that the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him shows that Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. So the key was given to, given to Satan, then Satan opens the bottomless pit, unlocks it, and the locusts emerge, and they, the locusts attack um, the unbelievers. Mm -hmm. So really, Satan's attacking his own people. In some ways, yeah. I, uh, so that was the, that comment you were reading on 9-1. On um, yeah, I think that it's important to, to note Jesus is, uh, is sovereign and that Satan can't do anything without, without God's um, okay. And we see that in Job, obviously. And here, uh, he has to be given the key to the bottomless pit. And then in Revelation 20, we see uh, a good angel that, um, that goes down and, and, and binds Satan. And so, um, yeah, with, uh, with Satan... Yeah, it, I don't know that Satan even has his like you know his own people per se. He, it's just, just it's just it's just every but other, yeah other than demons. But uh, in terms of unbelie unbelievers versus believers, yes, God has His people, and if you're not of His people, then you're not His people. Um, but Satan has no problem just pouring out judgment everywhere. And yeah. Yeah, and if Satan's trying to um, to well, attack all people, then then yeah, then that success will will not he will not find success on on those who are are sealed. Uh, um, in in verse twenty, 
The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of their works. Uh, I pointed out a little bit earlier about the connection there with Exodus and um, people still do not, uh, do not repent and they uh, face this judgment. Um, for time's sake, I'll try and, we'll try and move kind of quickly through chapter 10. Um, it's interesting, you, you see this in, in both the seals and the, the trumpets. You have the six, you have the first six, and then you have a break, an interlude of sorts, before you get to the seventh uh, seal and the seventh trumpet. And that, uh, it, 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 it's this divine kind of interlude. Uh, again, I don't, it's not chronological per se, but it's uh, just in the way that, that it's framed. You have this, this pause before God's judgment is poured out. Uh, and then once you get to the seven bowls, it just goes right on through and God's full judgment is poured out. And chapter 10, a mighty angel comes down, feeds, feeds John the little scroll, right? Uh, the little scroll, it's the, the scroll, verse 2, that is open in his hand. Um, why is it open? Because the lamb has unsealed the seven seals. And so uh, this is the seal from, or this is the scroll from chapter 5, that, that the lamb was worthy to open. And now, uh, and, and there, really the, the scroll that he had, the book that he had, was symbolic of God's plan of, judgment and redemption and now it's given to John and he is told to eat it um, it's patterned after Ezekiel 2 where Ezekiel does this and, and eating it the, the, the prophet identifies fully with the message now and internalizes it so he takes it, eats it uh, it's sweet as honey um, the sweetness is the, the uh, salvation is the redemption and the bitterness is the uh, is the judgment that, that is contained within. And so he is then commissioned to prophesy about uh, the contents here to many uh, peoples and nations, languages and kings. Prophesy, again, isn't just a future, um, just predicting the future, but it's giving a divine perspective on right now, on the present, and proclaiming that. And this is what we find in, in Revelation, is John prophesying, proclaiming these things. And then we get into chapter 11, and chapter 11 is really interesting, and it's another example of literal interpretation or, or a literary interpretation, seeing things uh, figuratively. And so we have these, uh, first we have the temple of God and the altar, and then the court outside that is, is trampled on. Um, John is given a measuring rod like a staff, uh, the measuring rod imagery is taken from Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel and Zechariah 2. It, uh, the measuring is a symbol of protection and security. And so the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there are measured. They're protected. They're secured. Uh, the question, and, th and then the court outside the temple is left out. Excuse me, it's given over to the nations. Uh, the question we have is, okay, is this a, is this a literal temple, the temple in Israel, um, and then the court outside of it, or is this, is this symbolic? And I think that we should see this symbolically. The temple of God in the New Testament is the people of God, the church. For instance, um, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. Uh, the temple of God is his people, 
And we also find the altar there. Uh, earlier in Revelation, the altar is associated with the presence of the saints, of the martyrs, especially in Revelation, uh, Revelation 6. And so I think what we have with the, this first portion, the temple and the altar and those who worship there, is uh, the, the church in its spiritual existence, those currently dead and with Christ in his presence, the, the spiritual reality that, um, that the church is protected and is the presence of God. And then verse 2, um, don't measure the court outside the temple. The court outside uh, is, is the church on earth in its uh, exposed uh, and vulnerable state, in some ways exposed and vulnerable to persecution, to uh, satanic forces. And that is why then it's trampled on by um, the, the holy city, which the holy city in Revelation is always the New Jerusalem or uh, the, the current manifestation of that on earth in the people of God, trampled on by the nations. Um, this pattern here is, uh, is formed after, after Jesus. Really, we have uh, the, the, the and, and we'll see this uh, later, I'll, I'll read something from Beale, he has a good quote on it, but um, this section in chapter 11 is, is patterned after Jesus' ministry, uh, and again, if this isn't just you know, a, a few, uh, literal thing happening in Israel, but this is talking about, through all time, the, the people of God on earth being persecuted, being trampled by the nations for 42 months. 42 months, I think, is symbolic for the church age. Uh, the, the age inaugurated with the resurrection until Christ returns the, the symbol of 42 months or, or 1260 days is taken from Daniel 7 and 12 where it's return, referring to the future period of tribulation and those then 42 months are mentioned here and in 12, uh, 5 and 6 and 13, 5 and in 12, 5 it's clearly this age that has been inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ and is occurring until his second coming and so they're trampled for 42 months, they're trampled for the church age. There's a, a reality that the church on earth um, is trampled, so to speak, by persecution, by, um, by, by those against God for the entirety of the church age until Christ returns. And then we have authority granted to two witnesses who are to prophesy again for 1260 days. The witnesses are prophesying throughout this length of time. In verse 4, John um, sees the, the identification of these two witnesses. They're the two olive trees and the two lampstands, alluding to Zechariah 2. Uh, the two lampstands, John has already told us, and we've seen throughout the books, the lampstands are the churches. So these are two churches. Um, it's interesting to note that in the seven churches, in the, the addresses to the seven churches, there were only two churches that were faithful, Smyrna and Philadelphia. So we have uh, this as really the, the faithful churches. Um, but I think that the two is also standing for God's, God's the, the, representing the faithful church throughout all time who stand before the Lord of the earth. As it says, they are in God's presence, and yet they also have this presence on earth as they are... Uh, witnessing and fulfilling their, their duties. 
They're patterned after Elijah and Modus, uh, Moses. Rather. Uh, in verse 6, they have the power to shut up the sky that no, may, no rain may fall. That is uh, one of the miracles of Elijah. And then they have power to, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth. It's the, the, the power that Moses had in, uh, in Exodus. It's also interesting when, when you look at what, why Moses and Elijah, they really stand as the two, the two chief prophets of the Old Testament. And if you see in the New Testament references to the law and the prophets, it's talking about the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew scriptures. Um, Moses is associated with the law, the Torah, and Elijah with the prophets, with the rest of uh, the Hebrew Bible. And so you have really the... Uh, even here, uh, Moses and Elijah, who are pointing forward to, to Christ and um, the church, serves as, as these witnesses who proclaim the good news of Christ and are faithful in, uh, in, in their witnessing to the, the word of God and the good news. But we also see here in, in verse 7, they finish their testimony. There's uh, the, the beast which rises up from the bottomless pit, which we will talk about more in later chapters. It conquers and kills them, and their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city, symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. And so are these two actual men in the future that will be killed in Jerusalem and lay out there? Uh, or I, I think that this is throughout, uh, I think this is, the church, and the, uh, it, it appears that there has been this defeat. The nations look on and laugh. They, uh, they party, they exchange presents, verse 10. And yet, uh, that's not the end of the story. Just as Jesus rose from the dead three days later, three and a half days later, they are resurrected with a breath of life from God. There's this, again, this connection to Jesus' ministry. So I'll go ahead and read that, that section from, from Beale. He says, The pattern of the, the narration of the witness's career in chapter 11 is intended as a replica of Christ's. It's a proclamation and signs that result in satanic op uh, opposition. There's persecution and violent death in the city where Christ was crucified followed by the world looking on their victim, the world's rejoicing, and then resurrection and vindication by ascension in the cloud. And so, again, we have this, this pattern connecting uh, the church's witness to the witness of Christ, and that is one of the things that the, the book of Revelation emphasizes, that we are to follow in the example of the slain lamb, and that the slain lamb is the one who conquered. And so if we are to conquer, we are to, uh, to follow that, that model does that make sense here with seeing chapter 11 Are we on the same page with seeing this as the church and the way that God, the church is protected um, and, and will be vindicated and yet there is this reality where now throughout the church age there is this persecution um, going on. It's just a little confusing to me about the idea that you know, they're, they're gazed at their dead bodies so it's like it's the church age it would be indicating that the church is somehow destroyed or something. And uh, I, I don't quite understand. And, well, 
Yeah, and I, I should have clarified that. Here in verse 7, is, is you have the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. And so this is um, more of a future occurrence when, um, when the beast, and I believe it, we'll talk about this in Revelation 20, uh, appears to have conquered and killed the church. Mm-hmm. And there is this rejoicing. And then it's so three... Yeah, and I think that, that we, there's this witness that occurs and still this trampling that is going on. Um, and there will be a time where it's like, oh, yeah, we, we won. The church is, is destroyed. And then the short period of time, the reason it's three and a half days, again, it's this figurative. It's, it's brief compared to three and a half years. They're, they think there's this victory uh, that they've, they've won but it's only three and a half days compared to the three and a half years. And so um, shortly after there's this resurrection, they're vindicated and there's this response. There's great fear. Um, here's, a, here's another quote from Emerson. Uh, I'll just read the, the second half. He's talking about uh, imagery and, and symbolism. For instance, the two witnesses in Revelation symbolize the church and its martyr testimony to the world about Jesus Christ. Instead of seeking to discern two specific men who will stand outside the temple in Jerusalem in our future, it is more appropriate, given the apocalyptic genre of the book and John's repetitive use of imagery, to focus on the spiritual and theological significance of these images and the messages they are intended to convey. Uh, Again, seeing the shared truths here, the the underlying message, and uh, if this here is symbolizing, not two literal men in the future in some point who will evangelize in Jerusalem and be slain, but the testimony of the church as they carry out the great commission and the responsibility um, given to them by Christ. They're carrying it out and they are persecuted and there seems to be this victory and yet uh, it's clear that there's not. They are vindicated. Um, I think it shows us as, as the church how we, how we live and, and part of our mission. Uh, they are protected spiritually. There is this death that occurs yet. Um, the souls of the, the martyrs, the, the spiritual side of this, they are protected because as we saw in, in verse 1 of chapter 11, um, those in the presence of God, there's this spiritual existence uh, of, of the church and yet on earth they, they face this persecution. Yeah, Diana? Well, um, again, for three days or three and a half days, the people, uh, they were rejoicing because the two witnesses died. Well, is that a shadow of Christ dying on the cross and a lot of people were celebrating that he's dead? And, and then he came back to life. He defeated death. Exactly. And that is uh, the, that pattern with the church of... Um, it looks like the church is defeated and yet um, they are vindicated by, by Christ and, uh, and then we, we see the response of the nations. It, it almost sounds like I mean, some sort of a resurrection and yeah. then being brought up to heaven like these individuals, I mean the, the church body, I, mean, I, I don't know, it's a little... Uh, yeah, they come up here. I don't think it's a, a rapture. If we look at four uh, one, the same same exact words were used. It was it was kind of a to to introduce the this the vision. Um, John is 
is said, come up here, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. And here it's, yeah, come up here, I'm going to show you what's happening. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not a, I don't think we should read a, you know, a rapture into it. And, and even if we do that, it's at the end of the church age. It's not before these judgments occur. They're already. Uh, so what does that mean? Talking about they went up to heaven in a cloud, their enemies watched them. What, what's it trying to tell us? Uh, I think that again, it patterned after the uh, after the resurrection of Christ and His ascension in a cloud uh, and His exaltation. The church, it's clear now to the enemies as they watch that um, that the church has victory. That the church is. Um, is vindicated by the triune God. And so, uh, yeah, to come up here, it's, it also notes, too, there that they have been protected, that they have been, been saved and, um, by, by God. And so, the, yeah, it's not a... And, and again, it's with the, the rapture, the idea would be that before any of the tribulation occurs, you're raptured up. Um, here, even if that is kind of the case, and it's it's not a yeah uh it's this all this happens after a um after this tribulation and after this the death of the church um, there's yeah there's so much i'm so sorry like i there's there's so many things we could talk about and so many things i would love to talk about um all these all these images all these uh these judgments are are really rooted again in the the Old Testament, and so I could spend all this time going through all those. Um, I don't have this all figured out either. So you, I mean, you guys ask all these good questions, which is helpful, keeps me on my toes. Um, what I what I want, and what the goal of this this study is, and what what Gary and I want is not that we just have every single detail of Revelation figured out, but that we we walk away knowing the the big picture of Revelation and, and understand. Uh, the message of the book, and also that we um, have patterns and and methods for studying the Bible and for being devoted to God's Word. And so, um, I mean, you'll see that again. As I, I don't have everything figured out, but um, how can we try and develop these methods of, of reading God's Word in a way that um, takes into account what, what the author is trying to do, all the Old Testament connections, all of the, the different ways in which truth is communicated. Truth isn't just communicated through a, necessarily a, a, a literal reading of this, and we can have a high view of God's word as we, as we try and seek the, the underlying theological message here. Um, yeah, there's so, so many other things I, I would love to talk about. If anyone has any any questions, we can, I can try and briefly answer some of those. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much here, and I'm thankful that we, uh, that we get to study God's Word, not just once, but we get to return to it for the rest of our lives as we, as we uncover the, the riches of, uh, of, of its, uh, its contents. So, any, Anything that, even, maybe not even a question, but anything that you that stood out to you from, from this passage, anything that you were encouraged by, anything that, um, that, that was new to you or, yeah, any, any. I'm reminded of that 
all this talk of symbolism and imagery, a lot of things, a lot of times I've heard said by different theologians, things that happen in reality are depictions or imagery of things that are going on in the heavens. Mm -hmm. um, so some of these things could be actual things that are happening that their meaning is transcendent. Yeah. People that they're happening to don't got no idea what's going on. And they're written down for us to be able to understand that. Yeah. What else? What, did anyone else have any any takeaways or um, or any well, the things? The creation, that, you know, the creation and Genesis, and then the decreation, and uh, I mean that's new to me. I'm going to see that, especially that graph you have. I never thought of it that way before. And that, again, lays the foundation as we look forward to uh, the, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. I have one um, for 10 one. Mm -hmm. And I saw another mighty angel turning down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun. His legs like pillars of fire. What I thought I took away from that was um, God's promise and covenant in the rainbow. Um, and when you see through a cloud and it's uh, kind of like a result to have a rainbow naturally. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a natural thing to have the cloud and the rainbow, but um, when the sun shines through it. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful imagery. I know I was, I was struck this week thinking about um, judgment and judgment is a really prevalent theme throughout the book um, and sometimes it you know might seem like okay come on god aren't you overreacting a bit like aren't you uh, aren't it, all these these judgments uh, they're extreme um, and so just trying to remind myself of the the gravity of sin of um, god's glory and the offense to his glory and that uh, we can never have too high of a view of God, and so as we uh, it, this yeah this forced me to uh, increase my view of God and, and decrease my view of of, of man as I, I see the depravity of, of sin and um, the judgment that we deserve and and pointing me towards Christ and how thankful I am for for the judgment that that fell on Him uh, that I deserved so. Um, yeah, God's judgment is is not something to just shy away from. It is a reality of Scripture, and it also um, really sh showcases His love as well. So, I, I was struck by that in the in these series of judgments. I think that um, I heard something just the other day about sin in general, and I think it kind of ties in with this. Where you know, sometimes we think of sin as like, well, we just didn't check all the boxes. You know, we, we didn't do it right all the time. We made mistakes. But that's not really what sin is. Sin is us saying we want to be God. We want to rule our own lives. We don't want God. That's really what sin is. And when you think of that and how what an affront that is to the creator of all things, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, at least you can understand a little bit more as far as yeah. the goes. Yeah. But, 
that ties right in. What I was looking at is chapter 9, verse 2021, which says, mankind is not repent, which is just a theme yeah. that just runs through the whole Bible. Right. People are constantly being, um, you know, punished or judged by God. And this is all a demonstration that God is real. And they see, you know, God, the thunder, the earthquakes, all these things. Yeah. It's God speaking through all these different events. And they just, like, continue to say, nope. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. Well, that's the whole Tower of Babel thing. We'll get to heaven on our own. We don't need you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really good reflections. I appreciate all those. Anything else before we close? What is next? Hooked on to that, it, we're, it's easy and we're quick to forget and think, then things kind of return to normal. So no repentance. Mm -hmm. Right, and the application for us is to, like, Sit in that silence, right? And mm -hmm. reflect and think how God's moving. And what is significant? You know, not to get caught up in the things of the world, right? So I heard this story on the way over here about uh, people's behavior. And um, they said, uh, people tell people about the big storms and the hurricanes are coming in. There's so many people on the East Coast that have storm shutters. But like an extremely small percentage of them ever use the storm shutters. I mean, it's like we see all these things around us of, you know, of how the world is not following after God, but yet we as Christians, we need to keep our eyes on there and use with the tools that God has given us. Yeah. Uh, next week, we are going to be going through chapters 12 through 14. Um, so I, I did want to quickly, I, I did, so I didn't give out like a, you know, an official handout homework sheet uh, this last week. I wanted you to just read the passage on your own and... Um, and take note of some things that I had been asking you to take note of, but also just see how maybe after for a few weeks using some of these methods, you were noting things on your own. And so was that, was it helpful to just do it on your own or is it, would it be more helpful to have kind of an outline or some questions that I, I'm asking or, or what? Does anyone have any feedback there? I like just uh, reading through it and working through it and okay. using the cross-references. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay, um, yeah, well, so next week we'll, we'll talk through 12 through 14. Um, so you can do that on your own and we'll, uh, we'll be ready to go through that. Uh, I will try and, and be a little more prepared in terms of just some questions and different things. Like, I, thank you for all your questions. Thank you for, like, I, I need them and they're helpful for me. They also make me realize that I... There's some, like, I can study this and be like, oh, yeah, I've got it figured out. And then someone asks a question, and I'm like, oh, dang it. So, um, so thanks for all your questions. Forgive me if I am unhelpful in any explanations I give. So, all right, well, I'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a good one. Thank you.